The Way Out Podcast, episode 53. If you don't have time to give back, you get caught up, and uh, next thing you're out there drinking or got a needle in your arm. I skied well and I partied well, but you know, when I was also the kid, if I really pull it back, I'm the kid that struggled with ADD, learning disabilities, dyslexia. I was a stupid kid in school, but when I found alcohol, man, that's what I was looking for. I liked what alcohol did. I didn't stop. I didn't worry about consequences. I got into cocaine, and, and I remember the first time I tried cocaine, I was with two of my buddies, and his, uh, my buddy Brian, his older brother, was having a party, and, and we split, four of us split a quarter gram. We each did one line, and my two buddies went home. And about 20 minutes later, I went up to Joel. I said, man, you got any more of that? I like what it did to me. So well, I've got a half gram. I'll split it with you. You owe me 25 bucks on Friday. First time I tried cocaine, I fell in love. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out. Sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out Podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of The Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, I am humbled and beyond grateful to bring you my interview with Tim Ryan, founder of the nonprofit recovery advocacy organization, A Man in Recovery and soon to be starring in A&E's one-hour special, Dope Man, debuting July 31st, which is a look at the day in the life of Tim Ryan tirelessly advocating for addicts and alcoholics to get the treatment they need and deserve. Tim Ryan should be dead many times over, has been in prison, and has endured would-be suicide, a reality many of us know all too well. Tim recovers out loud in a passionate and fierce manner and shares his story with us. Listen up. Tim, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule, saving souls, uh, doing God's work uh, to uh, be on the Way Out Podcast. Thank you, brother. Hey, Charles, thanks for having me. You know, if you if you don't have time to give back, you get caught up and uh, next thing you're out there drinking or got a needle in your arm. So it's uh, somebody reaches out. I give back. That's what it's all about. And I appreciate that. And I, uh, I, I, I've tried to embody that in my own recovery. And this podcast is a, really a result of that, you know, uh, doing whatever I can to be able to give back because I was able to receive that gift of desperation, which uh, I didn't think I was going to be able to receive. And for some reason, I got it and I was able to recover and I was able to get well. And it became very clear very, very early on that I needed to do whatever I could to give back. And it, and it really feels like you've uh, embodied that in so many different ways in your life today, uh, Tim. And uh, so why don't you do the Way Out podcast audience a favor and introduce yourself. Uh, and, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you're doing today, and then we can talk a little bit about you know what it was like for you uh, uh, in your in your active addiction, alcoholism, and what it took for you to recover. 
Right. Yeah, my name is uh, Tim Ryan. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and drug addict, sober by the grace of God and the 12 steps of a uh, wonderful program that starts with an A and ends with an A. I'm familiar. <laughs> you familiar with that program? I am. It's that crazy secret society it is. everyone calls a cult. And, it is. Uh, they do call it. <laughs> I, I love so, it. You know? It, it sort of him until I needed it. Well, you, you know, it's I, I'm not unique. I, I, if you don't mind, I'd rather kind of just start with because my whole story pulls into what I'm doing today, and and God's got a crazy sense of humor. But you know, I'll is that okay to kind of start absolutely back there? And and if people ask, my sobriety date is November first of two thousand and twelve. So if I make it to November this year, I'll have five years clean and sober, which is an absolute miracle because I couldn't stay sober five minutes, let alone five days. But if I really pull back, where did it start? You know, I'm 48 years old. I grew up uh, in the northern suburbs of Illinois, about a half hour south of the Wisconsin border. And when I was a freshman in high school, my best friend was a senior. The only thing I was good at was water skiing. We grew up on a lake. I was a competitive water skier. Barefoot water skiing was my specialty. Academics throw all you 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 water ski barefoot. Yeah, I was one of the top ranked barefoot water skiers in the country for uh, amazing. Yeah, for a long time I show skied. I three evented. I uh, slalom trick jumped. You name it. I skied with the Aquanuts. Did a very short stint at SeaWorld Cypress Gardens. But uh, outside of that, that's all. I I I skied well and I partied well. But you know when. I was also the kid, if I really pull it back, I'm the kid that struggled with ADD, learning disabilities, dyslexia. I was a stupid kid in school. And I can remember like freshman year, kids would pop in the room and go, aha, that's where all the dummies are. And you know, I was six foot one, 170 pounds as a freshman. So I learned to fight with my mouth and with my fists. But when I found alcohol, man, that's what I was looking for. And my every weekend, me and my buddy Randy were up in Lake Geneva drinking, but I liked what alcohol did. I didn't stop. I didn't worry about consequences. He went to college sophomore year. I got into cocaine. And, and I remember the first time I tried cocaine, I was with two of my buddies and his, uh, my buddy Brian, his older brother, was having a party. And, and we split four of us split a quarter gram. We each did one line. And my two buddies went home. And about 20 minutes later, I went up to Joel. I said, man, you got any more of that? I like what it did to me. He said, well, I've got a half gram. I'll split it with you. You owe me 25 bucks on Friday. First time I tried cocaine, I fell in love. And then I, I got out of high school at the 1.4 grade average, a uh, 11 on my ACT, which I took a number of times. And I had the opportunity to uh, go to college, but back then it was called open admissions. They'd take anyone. So it was either I'm going to Southern Illinois University or I'm going down to Monroe, Louisiana, uh, Northeast Louisiana University. And I went down to Monroe because it was the last state to have the drinking age 18. It was three to one girl to guys. You could hunt and fish. And they had the best intercollegiate quarter ski team in the country. So this, this is Nirvana for you. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely. <laughs> and I couldn't, my mom and I flew down there and I couldn't wait for her to get on that plane and leave. And as soon as she <laughs> left, I'm at the liquor store. And two hours later, I drank a, you know, a 12 pack of beer, a bottle of Jim Beam, and I'm pissed drunk. But in back then in 86, uh, ecstasy was prevalent in 85. It was, they sold it in bars in Texas. They made it illegal. So we started running drugs, making a lot of money. I got into doing acid, magic mushrooms, more cocaine. I never got on the water ski team. I never went to class and, and my life was an entire party. I had a 78 Ford Fairmount with the bumper sticker on the back that said in search of the eternal buzz. And that's what I was looking for. Um, through drugs and alcohol. I dropped out of college after three years, came back, did some odd jobs, got into more cocaine, got into smoking cocaine. And at 21, I checked myself into drug treatment in, in 1990. And, and why? Why did? Why at 21? I mean, was there a consequence? Our parents? What's happening well, you, at you that know, point? I was, I was smoking an ounce of cocaine a day with another gentleman. We were going to Chicago, getting uh, an ounce or two. We'd come back. We'd sell half of what we had and do the rest. My friends were starting to get worried about me. I was stealing checks. My parents found out. And... Uh, 
I had actually called the treatment center about three weeks earlier. I wanted help. I just didn't know how to ask for it. And I eventually ended up there. And I like treatment. And when I went into treatment, I went in with the thought pattern. I just want to quit doing drugs and I want to figure out how to drink like a normal person. Right, right. You want to get this sort of in check, right? That's what I wanted. And that's what I, you know, and they taught the 12 steps and I, I don't remember much of it, but I do remember February 2nd of 1990. And the only reason I remember that day, it was my parents' wedding anniversary. And a guy came in to speak and he shared his story and there was 38 of us as clients. And when he was done speaking, he looked at all of us and he said, one of you will be sober in a year. And right away, my hand shot up. I said, excuse me, sir, there's 38 of us. He said, listen to me, kid, one of you will be sober and a third of you will be dead. And it scared the hell out of me. And I said, what do I do? He said, don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. I'm like, okay, cool. So my dad had sat me down and my my dad was senior vice president of a company called EF Putney. He worked down at the Chicago Board of Trade in 26 years. He had never missed a day of work. And they, we were all adopted, you know, when we were poor, uh, a vacation was go canoeing on the river and pitch a tent. And as my dad and mom made more money, they were at everything. We did two vacations a year. Family was everything. And, and my dad said, where did we go wrong? And it really hurt me to this day. I said, dad, you didn't do anything wrong. He said, oh, I know that. And I'm like, oh, where are you going with this? <laughs> and, uh, those son of a gun Allen on people got to my mom and dad. Oh, no. Yep, yep. No. That was out of the bag. And my dad says, well, Tim, I didn't cause your disease. I can't cure it, and I can't control it. And I'm oh, gonna- the three C's. Yep, yep. Wow. Through in the fourth one. He goes, and I'm not going to contribute to it either. So he said, oh, yeah. yeah. He had a black belt in that deal. Sure did. Sure did. Wow. Yeah. He um, (laughs) said, you're welcome to come home, but the day you start drinking or doing drugs, you're out of the house. So, bam, I started going to the Chris Lake Alano Club. I went to 12-step meetings five five times a day. I started an asphalt seal coating business. I started, uh, partnered with a buddy. We ran a barefoot water ski school. My life was great, but I'm the guy that thought I could get sober through osmosis. If I hang out with a bunch of sober people, I'll get sober. It doesn't work that way. You know, I... I'd put my hand up and say, I'm looking for a sponsor. And no, nobody would pick on me. I'd be like, yes, I got away with it again. <laughs> I don't have to take any action. Yeah, exactly. And about six months in, this big guy comes up to me and he looks at me. He said, you know, kid, you're the stupidest son of a gun I've ever met. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, no one's going to come up and be your sponsor. You got to ask someone. I'm like, oh, that's how this works. So instead of doing that, I got a resentment and I quit going to meetings. <laughs> that, that asshole. Yeah. And I I was more focused on saving my friends and life was good. And then I ended up at a Grateful Dead concert. And I can remember the guy on the side of the road poster and a fatty seven dollars. And I'm like, man, I really want that poster and smoke that joint. And within two days, I was right back to drinking and doing cocaine, buried my businesses. And I came up with the brilliant idea. I'll, I'll, I'll relocate. I'll get away from all my problems. So I moved down with a buddy in Austin, Texas. Three weeks into that, I wanted to get high. I flipped on the news. Somebody got shot on 13th Street. So I went down to 13th Street. I know if they're shooting people, there's going to be drugs. There's going to be drugs. So you're telling me that, that you moved down to Texas and your disease came with you? Oh, crazy, crazy thoughts. Yeah, Amazing. that son of a gun followed me all over the country. All over the country. Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, long story short, I pulled some credit card fraud on my buddy. He found out, had me arrested, got to spend some time in the Travis County Jail. And and my MO was when things get bad, go back to the rooms, go back to meetings. So I got out and I met some guys at uh, the Molding Group. Um going to meetings that were all sober and they were marketing cable television door to door. So I cut cut and ran and we started traveling the country marketing cable television door to door and going to meetings, of course, not working a program. And I went from uh, Texas to Michigan to Buffalo, New York, to Denver, to California, to Florida, to Virginia. And a year later, I ended up back in Buffalo, New York, and I started my own marketing company. 
And within six months, I had about 60 people working for me and I was making about 25 grand a week, free and clear. Making money to me was very easy. Managing it was a hard part. It was also a trigger because I didn't have the coping skills. Well, now I'm making money, I can go back to drinking and doing drugs. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I buried that business, lost a ton of money, come back to Chicago and uh, go back to meetings. And I met a guy that was a headhunter. He placed people in the technology space. I started working with him, made a ton of money. Six months in, you know, I made 50 grand in one month and I went right back to drinking and doing drugs. And he wasn't going to get rid of me because he... I made him a lot of money. Yeah, you were you were making it rain, right? I mean, right. So I had the opportunity about a year later to join one of our clients, which was a management consulting firm. So I went to work for this management consulting firm in Chicago. And of course, I was a hard worker. I mean, if my boss was in at 630 in the morning, I was in at six. Sure. If, he, if he left at seven at night, I left at 730. And he thought I was the next best thing to slice bread. And I very quickly am making upwards of a quarter million a year. I got the new Skeenatique. I got the Harley. I got the the white Jeep. But every night I'm with myself, by myself, crying to myself, saying I can't stop. And uh, that's the way my life went. And I walked into work one day, and there was a beautiful lady behind the front desk. And she had a peach outfit on. And in my smart aleck voice, I said, hey, Peachy, how are you? She said, good. I said, who are you? She said, I'm Shannon Hoban, the new receptionist. She said, who are you? I said, well, I'm Tim Ryan, the director of recruiting. And she said, oh, you're the jerk that didn't want to hire me. I said, what are you talking about? She said, weren't you looking for an assistant? I said, yeah. She said, didn't Bill give you my resume? I said, you're the banker lady. She said, yes. I said, I don't like bankers, and I never called you in for an interview. You got to understand, my ego was so big because I'm making all this money. Everyone I'm hiring has PhDs, MBAs from Cal Poly, Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, MIT, University of Chicago, Northwestern, DePaul. And I'm the guy with the 1.4 grade average who got the 11 on his ACT, making more money than all these educated individuals. So. I told her, you know, I said, look, I feel bad. I'll I'll take you out for a drink in a few weeks. So I took Shannon out to the bar with my buddy Vic, uh, Bennigan's Restaurant, which is where I interviewed a lot of people because I could drink all day and snort cocaine and nobody knew. (laughs) And uh, she got up, had two beers and went to the bathroom. And my buddy Vic's like, well, I'm going to ask her out. I said, no, I got this one in the bag. And I waited for her to come out of the bathroom. I gave her a kiss and I said, you are my new girlfriend. And she said, I'd like that, but I have one question to to ask you. Do you do drugs? And I said, absolutely not. Why? Of course, everything that comes out of my mouth is a lie. And she said, well, I've got a three-year-old son by the name of Nicholas who has a deadbeat dad that's a drug addict, and I want nothing to do with the drug addict. I said, I'm not an addict. And she said, great, let's go on another date. She went to Naperville. I went to Chicago, bought a quarter ounce of cocaine. And Five months later, she's pregnant with Maxwell. So I adopted Nick, dragged her to the courthouse, married her. We had Max. And then she realizes she's living with the full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. Um, What got me to quit doing cocaine was Nick's five, Max is 14 months. She's pregnant with Tanner. Nine months after Tanner was born, she is pregnant with Abby. I'd been up doing cocaine for a few days, and I woke up, and my 14-month-old son was crawling towards my home office. So I picked him up, and I put him in his room, and I opened my office door, and there was cocaine all over the floor. If Max would have crawled in and ate one of those rocks, it would have killed him. So immediately, what's my MO? Go back to meetings. And and this time, I kind of got a sponsor. I kind of worked the steps. I started another business. What's so, did you, so, Tim, did you kind of get better then when you kind of got a sponsor and yeah. kind of worked in steps? Did yeah, you kind of get better? I mean, I, I put recovery first, but I didn't know what recovery was because sure. I, I always thought in the back of my mind I can go drink again when things get better. Sure. Um, so I made it a little over a year sober, um, started another business. Life was good. We're building a beautiful five-bedroom house out in the suburbs. And I took a guy that I met at one of the meetings to move out of his apartment in Chicago. So we're moving Joel out and out of the bedroom, his roommate Sava pops. He's like, who are you? I'm like, I'm Tim, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm moving out Joel, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing heroin, you wanna do some? Okay, that quick. 
Wow. And I was 32 years old and I picked up my first bag of heroin and, and that bag of heroin led into a $500 a day habit for 12 years. Wow. And it, it just got worse, more consequences, another DUI, four driving on revokes. I got my first stint in prison in 08 and, and I can remember going to prison they give you a year, but you do 61 days and they release you. And, and telling my kids that I was going to India on business for two months because I worked in the technology space. I mean, you don't want to tell your, your four kids that your dad's a junkie and an alcoholic and he can't stay sober. And I learned nothing. I got out of prison. <clears throat> and this was in 2008. My wife, Shannon, sat me down and she said, you know, while you're in prison, I applied for a a Dunham scholarship, uh, a Dunham scholarship to go to nursing school. And I said, you don't need to work, Shannon. I make plenty of money. And she said, Tim, the way you're living, you're going to end up in two places. You're going to end up dead or back in prison. And we have four kids to take care of. Um, she got the scholarship. She graduated top of her class in three years. And I didn't even go to her graduation. You know, that's what the disease of addiction does. I started another executive search firm. Again, make a ton of money. I got an office in the Wrigley building, beautiful house, wife, four kids, and went right back to doing heroin. And uh, December 6th, <coughs> pardon me, December 16th of 2010, I drove one more time. And uh, I overdosed while driving. I hit two cars and I put four people in the hospital, one being a nine-month-old baby. I was five shots of Narcan to bring me back. I was clinically dead that time. Um, in hindsight, I've overdosed eight times. I've been clinically dead three. I've had two minor heart attacks. So, I mean, statistically, I should be dead or in prison. I shouldn't be talking to you clean and sober right now. Um, I remember waking up in the hospital. This cop's yelling at me that I killed people. And he was so mad because his part, uh, he had just lost a, a friend or a son to an overdose. And when they finally booked me, the other cops said, look, you didn't kill anyone, but you put four people in the hospital. You know, it was my fifth driving on revoke, my third DUI, possession of drugs they charged me with. So it wasn't a good situation. And what's my MO? Go get the best lawyer and, and I'm going to beat this. And I remember sitting down with my lawyer and I said, look, they didn't get blood or urine. We need to beat this. He said, uh, Tim, you're not going to beat it. You're going to prison. It's just a matter of for how long. So what did I do? I went right back into heavy addiction. I wanted to die, but I was too afraid to hurt myself. Um, but when you're doing the amount of drugs I was and alcohol, I mean, it was just a matter of time. Yeah, that's that's suicide. I call that suicide on the installment plan, brother. That was it, you know. And, and with my oldest son, Nick, I was not a father to Nick. I was a friend. See, I was a cool dad that let him and his buddies smoke weed in the basement, have some beers. I think I tripped on acid with them once. I was looking for a friend. I didn't know how to be a father. Right. And about three months into fighting my case, now all my kids know dad's a heroin addict. And I was really dope sick. And I'm taking a hot bath and Nick was 17 and he comes in the bathroom. He said, what's wrong, pops? And I said, what do you think, you idiot? I'm dope sick. And he said, not anymore. Today's your lucky day. And he threw, threw two bags of heroin on the counter. So I got out of the tub and I did them. And I went in my son's room and I said, Nick, what the hell are you doing? He said, don't worry, dad, I'm just selling a little bit. And I said, Nick, this isn't weed, this is heroin. And you know what this drug has done to me. And my son looked right at me and he said, well, dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why the hell would you say that? Well, we got a nice house. You got an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living. So my son's delusional mind, because I functioned, he thought I was successful. Three months later, we were doing heroin together. And that's how my son and I bonded, uh, doing drugs, doing drug runs, uh, causing total chaos to his mother. Um, I fought my case for 21 months, and on uh, October 30th of 2012, Judge Wattis at 26 in California in Chicago sentenced me to seven years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. When I went to prison the second time, I weighed 158 pounds. I defecated and puked myself for two weeks straight, and I was in Stateville Correctional Center, and they house you until they figure out what prison you're going to go to. And that's where I had my spiritual awakening. I, 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 I didn't sleep for 30 days. I, I mean, it, it just was hell on earth, but I needed to go through that hell to feel that. And that's where I looked up and I said, God, 
higher power, whatever's out there, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use, and I swear I will turn my will and life over to you, and let me get into Sheridan Correctional Center. And the next day, I was transferred to Sheridan Correctional Center, which in Illinois, there's 28 prisons, and Sheridan at the time was the only drug treatment program. So when I walked into Sheridan Prison, I was probably the happiest person to walk into the Illinois Department of Corrections. <laughs> you know, I knew the fight was over. And in prison, you do 30 days in one building and 30 in another. And it's a it's like doing an outpatient program. If you you know, you're doing small group three hours a day, five days a week. And I finally get to the final building and I got into one of the little ones, which everyone wants to. And I walk into my cell and there's this big black guy sitting on the bunk. And he's reading an AA big book. And I walk in, I said, hey, man, how you doing? And he looks right up at me. He says, hey, Whitey, you into recovery? I said, yeah, why? He said, because if not, you are not coming in the cell, my friend, because that's all we do in here. And I said, I'm into recovery. He said, hi, I'm Big Perk. Nice to meet you. I said, I'm Tim. Nice to meet you. He said, I think I'll call you Powder. I said, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he was a former gang chief in Chicago on the west side for 25 years. He had spent 23 years in prison, 10 stints. He was a ruthless individual. Today's one of my best friends, and that man helped save my life. Because all we did in that cell 18 hours a day was study the NA basic text, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the Bible. We read hundreds of books in the day room at night. We'd have a meeting. Um, I never had any expectations. I never expected a visit. I never expected a letter. And I never expected to pick up the phone and call home and anyone to answer. So if I called home and someone answered, it was a blessing. If I got a letter, it was a blessing. And if I got a visit, it was a blessing. And my wife, Shannon, brought two of our kids to visit me every two weeks. And I did my time by watching the corn grow, get cut down, grow again. And I counted on those visits. But Unfortunately, in prison, that beautiful house I built my wife and kids was lost in foreclosure due to my addiction. So my wife and four kids had to move in with Shannon's mom. Uh, my three boys lived in the basement. Shannon and my daughter, Abby, shared a room, and, and Shannon's mom, Mary, had her bedroom. Um, on Father's Day of 2013, my wife, Shannon, I called her and I said, are you bringing two of the kids to visit today? She said, yeah. She said, but I need to let you know something. Uh, I sent you a package, Tim. And I'm like, cool, what'd you send me, magazines? She said, I sent you divorce papers. She said, I can't do it anymore. So we'll be right back with the second half of my interview with the incomparable Tim Ryan as we pause for this week's Recovery Revealed. Relapse is an all-too-common occurrence in the journey of those who have been in recovery from alcoholism and or addiction. My own recovery journey includes multiple relapses, which were the unavoidable outcome of my inability or unwillingness, or both, to work an honest program of recovery through the 12 steps. The definition of the word relapse is to suffer deterioration after a period of improvement which aptly describes the process of relapse from a state of recovery. Make no mistake, by virtue of relapse being an all too familiar pattern in recovery does not mean that relapse has to be a part of recovery. It doesn't. At the same time, because one relapses does not mean they cannot achieve long-term and yes, lifelong recovery. They absolutely can and have countless times. Relapse is a risky proposition. A relapse can have severe and irreversible consequences cast upon us. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous adeptly warns that we have a progressive disease and a relapse can and will lead us to jails, institutions, and death. My own sponsor requires me to have a relapse prevention program in place that I can exercise if I should find myself in a situation where I am at risk, one that was especially useful in early recovery. Most folks working a solid program of recovery will tell you emphatically that those who relapse display an all-too-familiar pattern of behavior. They stop going to meetings, stop socializing with their peers in recovery, stop praying and maintaining conscious contact with their higher power, 
stop calling their sponsor, and they stop being of service to others in and out of the rooms of their 12-step program of choice. This is a disease of isolation, and there is no doubt we are much more vulnerable to relapse if we're not connected. It is a we program, not a me program. Those who relapse will also commonly confess they didn't go to any length or stopped going to any length. This suggests that if we don't work all 12 steps as laid out in the big book or in a basic text all the way through, and if we don't keep working the steps in our daily lives, we risk relapse. And when we risk relapse, we risk literally everything. Now back to the second half of my interview with my man, Mr. Dope to Hope, Tim Ryan. I walked out of prison December 16th, 2013. Three years to the day I caught the case, I walked out of prison. I did 13 and a half months. And for the first time in my life, I was 13 and a half months clean and sober. And basically my foundation, we guide and direct people into treatment, whether they have no insurance, state insurance, good insurance. We assist paying for people to get into sober homes. I run a number of support groups where I have the families come with the loved ones. And then on my 21 month sobriety date, my former wife Shannon called me and said our son Nick overdosed again. So Shannon picked me up, we shot to Hinsdale Hospital, we ran into the hospital, Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son Nick, he overdosed, and 30 seconds later the chaplain walked out. And I knew my son was dead. And I'll ask you, what was my next thought? Stick around for the full version of Roger's Piano Jam at the conclusion of this episode. Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. After 18 years with my wife, she divorced me while I was in prison. Um, I had about six to eight months to process that. She still came to visit every two weeks. And when I walked out of prison, I, I caught my case December 16th of 2010. I walked out of prison December 16th, 2013. Three years to the day I caught the case, I walked out of prison. I did 13 and a half months. And for the first time in my life, I was 13 and a half months clean and sober. And Shannon and my mom had found a townhouse for me where I, I reside in Naperville, Illinois now, west of Chicago. And they found me a townhouse. Shannon took me there, all our furniture was in. Um, she brought all the kids over. We all had Portillo's hot dogs and beefs. And that was the last time I was with my four kids as a family because my oldest son, Nick was stolen addiction. Um, as soon as my parole agent showed up, I went to a meeting, got another sponsor, went through the steps again. I met him every Saturday for six months. We went through the steps and we started studying Drop the Rock on shortcomings and character Love defects. that book. Love yeah. that book. One of the best books out there. And we still meet occasionally now to, to go back and study Drop the Rock because I've got a lot of defects and shortcomings. Well, um, you know what, brother? We can pick them back up too, can't we? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because you know, it's like... After four and five, I was looking cold at my character defects that manifested within the relationships in my life, and they made me sick. And I had no idea how selfish I had acted. I had no idea how driven by fear I was. And so I was ready. Uh, but as life gets lifey, I want to take those defects back back so that I can use them when they're convenient. And that's where that drop the rock becomes pretty helpful. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. And, you know, I, I plugged into recovery. I went back in the tech space for three months. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I commuted four and a half hours a day by two trains, a bus, two hours and 15 minutes each way. I was home every night for a meeting. And then I uh, set up my foundation uh, called a Man of Recovery Foundation. I wrote the business plan in prison with uh, my cellmate, Big Perk. And basically my foundation, we guide and direct people into treatment, whether they have no insurance, state insurance, good insurance. We 
assist paying for people to get into sober homes. I run a number of support groups where I have the families come with the loved ones struggling. Today, I speak all over the country. I've got a program called The Cop and the Convict, where we educate parents on cell phone monitoring software, computer monitoring software, drug testing. I stumbled into working for a treatment center. And then on my 21-month sobriety date, my former wife, Shannon, called me and said our son, Nick, overdosed again. So Shannon picked me up. We shot to Hinsdale Hospital. We ran into the hospital. Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son, Nick. He overdosed. And 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. And I knew my son was dead. And I'll ask you, what was my next thought? Uh... I I I I I I want to use. That's what ninety percent of the people say. No, my next thought was I'll be at the six o'clock meeting that night. Thank and that's God what for I that. Did. Because that, that that obsession and compulsion have been lifted. You know, Nick died on my twenty-one month sobriety date at twenty years old. I will be the first to tell you that I helped kill my own son. Um, I will always live with that. Even though Nick had been to treatment six times, he had just got out of jail uh, seven days prior. And when he died, he had snorted two bags of heroin and one of his buddies gave him a bar of Xanax. And, and about a half hour later, they knew Nick was overdosing. And instead of calling 911, they panicked. They put him on the sofa. They went in the basement, did more drugs and forgot about him. Came up an hour later, he was dead. Um, you know, it, it is what it is, but in, in Nick's passing, it really instilled. I buried my son on, on Wednesday night and Thursday night. We had a big Narcan training event that I already had scheduled. And in the newspaper, it said anti-heroin crusader loses son to overdose. And ultimately, and my son's passing helped lay the groundwork for what I do today. But I, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Nick died August 1st of 2014. Uh, you know, I'm coming up on his three-year anniversary death. Um, I've been to 110 funerals since my son passed away. But I've probably put upwards of 3,000 people into treatment. Um, so, you know, I just keep pushing forward. And, and I was invited to the 2016 State of the Union address. You know, I've been on... In Newsweek magazine, CNN, uh, front page of the Chicago Tribune, I've been in 500 publications. And what was just released today is my, uh, I've, I also published a book. I wrote a book, uh, basically the memoirs of my life. You can find that on Amazon. Just go to books and look up From Dope to Hope by Tim Ryan. And all the profits from that, if anything comes in, I give it all away. It all goes into my foundation. All my speaking event money I get paid for, I put it all in the foundation. I give it all away. With my foundation, we have no salaries. We're all volunteer-driven. Uh, last year, I did about uh, 93000 in speaking events, paid events. I gave every dollar away. And I uh, put over uh, 40 people into treatment and paid for 60 people to get into sober homes. So, you know, that's what I do with my life today. I worked for a drug treatment center, um, but then I had been filming a pilot for a TV show, which is launching uh, this year, July 31st, after the premiere of Interventions. It's called The Dope Man. And it's a one hour special, a docu-series on a day in the life in my world. And it's pretty damn powerful because now people will see what I truly deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm a hope dealer. I, I, I deal hope. That's all I can do. I can lead a horse to water. I can't make the horse drink. Um, but if someone falls, I can hopefully pick them up. But what you got to understand when you're dealing with heroin, you got two choices. You will get sober. Or you will die. You might do some sit down time in the prison or jail system, right. but you will either get sober or you will die. And the greatest miracle of all this is, uh, my girlfriend, who's now my fiance, uh, had told me a little over two years ago, I'm pregnant. I said, what are you talking about? You are <laughs> it ain't mine. Yes, it is. And, um, I have a beautiful little daughter, Mackenzie, who's a little over 22 months old. And, and it's the first time in my life I've raised a child clean and sober. I have my other daughter, Abby, who's a straight A student. She's 18. 
My other son, Tanner, who just graduated high school, he's uh, 17. And then my 19-year-old son, Maxwell, works for me full-time doing interventions. And he's my full-time driver because I have not had a driver's license in 16 years. (laughs) But I am, uh, in two weeks, I get to uh, go see the formal hearing officer and see see if they'll grant me to have a hardship license. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But Would I change anything? Nope, I can't. Um, All I can do is give back and it's just getting worse out there. I I love my life today, I love what I do, but people think, oh, you wrote a book and you're on TV and your life's so great. No, it's not, man. You should talk to the father whose 31-year-old son is shooting heroin in his basement and his three-year-old daughter's there and the father's just crying to me, can you please come help us? We don't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. What do you charge? I don't charge. It's free. Everything I do is free. I don't charge for interventions. I don't do any of that. I just want to help people. You know, and I love that spirit, Tim. You know, when you were talking about this, you know, um, uh, the spiritual awakening that you were given, and we talked a little bit about that before uh, we uh, started recording the interview, and you got that gift of desperation where you just gave it up and you just asked God for help, whatever. And, you you know, for me, I had an extremely similar experience in a a treatment counselor's office. Yeah, I um, I went to treatment the first time when I was 15 years old and didn't get sober until I was 36. So, um, you know, I didn't take the first or the second or the third time for me either. Um, But for some reason, somehow I got I got that gift of desperation and did you feel that sort of overwhelming sense of relief when you were finally able to surrender to not only your disease but that power greater than yourself that you didn't understand that you didn't that you didn't have a connection with but just had to had to just feel like if it exists if it's out there can it, can it, it, I got nothing else. I got nothing else. I've tried everything else, right? And you're at, you're at well, the very end. It, absolutely. You know, to me, they call it a gift of desperation. That's what God means to me. G-O-D, right. gift of desperation. Right. I was desperate enough to put my hands up and say, damn it, I need some help because my way for the past 30 years has not worked. Well, you know, one of my dear friends, Brandon Novak, he was in the jackass movies and Viva La Bam and he's Bam Majera's best friend. He's been sober a little over two years and I've really helped him along the way and we do a bunch of things. But Brandon's story, he says, you know, I'm in my last detox, my 13th detox and I'm meeting with the lady and she says, Brandon, today can be the best day of your life. And he says, what are you, you got to take your analysis. What are you talking about? And she said, Brandon, here's the problem. You are taking advice from the last person you did drugs with, telling you this isn't a good idea to get sober. Do you think that's a wise idea or do you think you actually wanna take some other people's suggestions? And he said right there and then the light flipped on. And he said two days into detox, he saw the guy he walked in with smiling. He's like, well, if that guy can smile, I can smile. And that's what I did. I can remember people laughing and yelling at my cellmate and I in prison, being like, what are you guys doing having so much fun in there? It's like, hey, we're going to get out. Um, Life isn't bad. We're sober. We're working on changing. Man, and it's been a blessing ever since. This idea that you can take this uh, journey, this incredible journey that you went on, uh, these very, very high highs, uh, where you were feeling not only uh, on top of the world uh, financially, you know, uh, by the way, you know, uh, you and Bill W. have a couple of things in common, right? In terms of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, being on top of the world and then losing it all and being on top of the world and sort of losing it all, right? Um, and uh, although I think you've got Bill W. beat a cup by, by, by a couple of stretches, nonetheless, um, uh, having these low, low, low lows and being able to translate that into, um, you know, um, uh, living a life of service. You know, when I got sober, 
uh, uh, December 6, 2014. I didn't know what that meant, but I did know that, you know, uh, three weeks later, my wife uh, divorced me and I had nothing, right? Like I had nothing. Absolutely. I had yeah. nothing. I had, I had to find a place to live in two weeks. Um, I, I mean, it was, you know, I had nothing. And so I had to, I had no friends. I had, I had burnt all that. Right. So like I had to depend on this God that I didn't understand. Right. And, and, then and I, I didn't and quit know. doing it my way. And, and I'm telling you, the doors opened and, and I walked through them and, you know, I, I still try to, you know, I, I hit my knees every morning. I hit my knees every night. You know, people like, how are you so happy? And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, because <laughs> I'm not living under Lower Wacker Drive shooting dope with the homeless people anymore. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of pain and heartache, but there's a hope or there's a message. I, I had a kid post on my Facebook today. Here, let me find this for you. I'm going to read it to you and it these are this is what keeps me oh come on work what keeps you going right you get the, the you get these I, sort of messages from people that 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 for some reason or another you were able to act as a channel to god that well, day here right? it is this kid posted my business card and he said nine months ago today i was given this card and a phone number and i was asked if i was done and do and and willing to do whatever it takes Best decision I ever made in my life. Thank you, Tim Ryan, for the opportunity to get my life back. I will continue to do what you did for me and give back what was so freely given to me. I love you, Bridie. Uh, I love you, brother. You're absolutely right. Sobriety does not stop. Suck. Stay seeking. And, you know, that's what it's all about. Nah, that's a miracle. Sobriety that's a miracle. Does not suck, you know, and I, I think I'm going to get that trademark because I trademark from dope to hope. But it doesn't. And people ask me, oh, you got any pro I have, you know how many problems I got in my life? Zero, none. I don't have problems. I have situations I need to attend to and I attend to them. Drugs and alcohol caused all my damn problems. <laughs> Once I took that out, I just started to work on myself and, and yeah, I got up and down days, but it's, it's, man, it's, it's never as bad as what it ever was, you know? And you've got this opportunity because you um, uh, you surrendered and you uh, began, like you said, in that in that cell, you know, all your life in and out of our favorite twelve step program that starts with an A and ends with an A. You participated in the fellowship of the program all day long, but and I did the same thing, but I never worked the program. Right, you got to live the program, man. I. Recovery is number one before my fiance, before my kids. Mm -hmm. My relationship with God and recovery is number one. And I still do meetings. I have a set Saturday morning meeting at 6.30 a.m. I have a Sunday morning walking meeting, rain, snow, sleep, whatever. We walk and we talk. I do that Sunday at 7.30. And then throughout the week, I try to hit a couple meetings outside of working for a treatment center, running my foundation, running my support group, speaking all over the country, doing a TV show, all these things, man, without, that's why I love traveling because I get to do meetings in all different towns. It's so bad. I think cool and I love it's doing awesome. that. Yeah. It's awesome. And yeah. it, it, I go to meetings and I tell people, my best suggestion is A, get a sponsor with long-term recovery. Get Who has what you want, right? Yeah. Like, like well, has what you want. Get the pile driver because I is a guy that would suck up to get the meanest son of a bitch in the room that's got 20 years and ask him how he did it and take his damn suggestion. <laughs> I didn't know anything, but right. as I tell people, you go to a meeting, there's 30 people, 10 are on BS, yep. 10 are on the fence, and 10 are plugged in. Hang right. out with the winners. Bingo. You know, Bingo. so simple. If you're in the middle of the herd, you're not going to get picked off. But if you're on the outside, those lions and tigers are going to come scoop you up. That's so. correct. That is correct. And, you know, the reason I've been able to maintain continuous sobriety and I wasn't able to before is uh, that willingness to do whatever it takes to uh, uh, to be in recovery and be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and the people around me. I wake up every day and that's what I ask God to help me do to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and the people around me, no matter what that means. That means in, in work, 
in my podcast, in meetings, in uh, my family, whatever it is. And if I take a given situation and I ask, what, how can I be of maximum service? Guess what? I know what I need to do. And it always, always nets a positive result. It's not always what I want to do, by the way, but it is what I know I should do. And I, more often than not, nine times out of 10, I've been doing that. And because I do that, I'm rewarded. And I'm rewarded in ways that I cannot predict. And I cannot imagine. Absolutely. And, you know, just uh, being able to get up and change my daughter's diaper or just the simple things. You know, I can walk out in my lawn and put my feet in the grass whenever I want to. I couldn't do that in prison. I don't take things for granted anymore. You know, I got a roof over my head, clothes on the back, food on the table, a couple brothers and sisters in recovery. I'm good to go. You know, my my fiance always says, you know, honey, if we were living in a one bedroom apartment um, on food stamps, I'd be just as happy as is what we're doing today. And, you know, life's good, man. I, I it's it's awesome. It is and the ability awesome. to be able to be truly um, helpful and really, really be able to like for me, there's these rare instances where I feel like. Again, I I end up being this sort of channel for the God of my understanding, and he uses me to be able to do his work, right? Um, And those are those moments where somebody reaches out to you and says something that I heard, something that you did, something, you know, that Facebook post, that's beautiful. That's that's a miracle, right? That's a miracle of uh, recovery, and uh, it's a spiritual uh, miracle. And we have that ability, and there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that rivals that that uh, experience when you're able to uh, really help somebody. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Give it back. Do what you got to do. Pay it forward. If you're having issues, get out of yourself. Check on someone else. Don't call them to whine about your issues. See how they're doing. And the miracles happen. And you know, you're probably one of those. Uh, now, I, I sponsor, and uh, um, you probably Tim, one of those sponsors. If you have a sponsee that calls you whining, you probably say, "Who did you help today?" Click. Right? Absolutely. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. He'll, uh, I don't. Co- I don't co-sign anyone's BS, man. You ain't calling me to whine. Forget it. Those things are over. I love it. I love it. Peter Marinelli, chop wood, carry water. That's what it's all about. You know, get out of yourself, help others, and miracles will happen. You know, and and that's it, bro. That's and that's it. about you getting out of your own way and being able to do God's work. And boy, you've been able to get out of your way and do a lot of God's work. And I want to direct people, uh, if you want to learn more about what Tim does, um, if you want to be able to contribute to his uh, foundation, a man in recovery dot uh, is the uh, foundation, and it's all initials, so it's a. Uh, maybe you can help a, me too. It's www.amirf as in Frank dot org, a man in recovery foundation, or you can uh, go to my other site, which is booktimryan.com if you're interested in speaking events or just learning more, or you can find me on. What am I on? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, one's, I think Instagram's from Dope to Hope and uh, Twitter's a man in recovery. So that's it, man. You're super easy to find. And so if you want to connect with Tim, uh, go ahead and do that. He does amazing work uh, for this. We've got an epidemic, brother, when it comes to this uh, opium, opioid and heroin epidemic. It's taking way too many lives and the more we can get the message out that lifelong recovery is possible, the better. And so I cannot thank you enough for helping me get that message out. We can recover. We can recover. We can recover. Absolutely. Charles, it's truly been an honor. I appreciate everything. And if you're ever in the Chicago area, hit me up. My casa is your casa, brother. I love you, brother. Thank you very much. Have a great day. We'll talk soon, man. All right. Well, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, 
all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.
That's what I gotta do. Okay. I'm gonna do this. Ooh. I'm gonna keep it going. Keep it going full speed. Like my sugar with coffee and cream.
be another way I can go. There's gotta be another way I can go. So let's let's start it out. Like let's see if I start it out.